As we are getting ready for the message this morning, I would ask that we would all take our cell phones and hit the silent button on them, please. Um, please do that, and uh, let's make sure we're not interrupting the Lord and what He's doing with us by a cell phone. Let me get plugged in here. We have uh, Brother Dan Zortman back up from uh, Arizona. So, uh, Rose, I understand, has a headache, but it's always good to see Brother Dan back and and uh, he was back there even by the door where he always was before, too, when he was coming in. So it's good to have Dan. And also, JT's folks are up from Texas. So I'm sh- did you have to come to Oklahoma when you came up? Because you always have to go up to go to Oklahoma. <laughs> no, you just went bypassed it. Okay. Still, y'all, a lot of y'all don't understand what we're doing there. So, <laughs> but, um, Huh? Oh, a quota? I don't know. I guess we're over our quota. Oh, I'm going to talk to you today about, uh, and, and what I want you to do is try to grab hard, try to focus in this time what I'm trying to say here, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this, this is my original title, the implications, plural, of Jesus Christ, of the resurrection of Jesus but I want you to know in advance, I've, I have reduced this down to simply one implication. That is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do today is we're going to be looking at the resurrection, what that means, and then how that affirms the complete and total Lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, I'm going to read, starting off here, out of a book I've been in. This is out of a book called uh, The Way of Holiness by Stephen Olford. And he writes under uh, the chapter, The Rights of Divine Lordship. So, as we consider ourselves in the totality of our faculties, we are obliged to acknowledge that there is no part of us that has not been bought outright you know the bible says you're no longer your own but you've been bought with a price and then it goes on to say glorify god in your body you don't have the right anymore if you're christ's child to do what you want to do okay so he writes christ alone owns our eyes to view his world he alone owns our hands to serve his will he alone owns our feet to walk His way. He alone owns our minds to think His thoughts. He alone owns our hearts to love Him fervently. He alone owns our personalities to radiate His charm and glory. And then he says this, failure to recognize this is a refusal to recognize His sovereignty. And as I was reading that, I was just thinking about what, in, in times of my life, as I go through and, and I make a choice to do opposite what I know pleases God. In other words, I make a choice to satisfy me, to do what I want to do, okay? And believe you me, 
It's not as grandiose as some big rank sin that we like to grade, but it could be the, the intentional permission that I grant my soul to endeavor to argue an old hurt in my mind, to hold contempt to a brother or sister, to, to uh, not see with mercy those lost in sin around me is, is my, my part in taking on what I think ought to be done. I don't have the right. Then later he writes, A life that is not possessed by God is open to the control of the devil. It is only a matter of time before the behavior of that person will manifest the evidences of satanic intrigue and intention. This is why it is so important to state quite categorically that when Jesus Christ possesses us as Lord, He does so with utter completeness. Or to put it in the words of Hudson Taylor, and I love this, Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Total Lordship. To be half-hearted in this matter of personal dedication to the sovereignty of Christ is tantamount to the repudiation of His sovereign authority. Those are, those are heavy, heavy words. And in our day, we don't really know what to do with that because we live in a, in a, uh, a, a republic, a, a, a democracy, if you will, where we, we get a vote and, and we don't have a, a monarch over us. We, we have a president and we have elected uh, legislators and all of those things, but we have a vote and everybody kind of comes together. At least that's how it's supposed to work. So, but, but we don't understand what it would be like to live under a total, complete, absolute monarchy. We watch old movies or movies that are based in, you know, medieval periods where we have total monarchs and we think wow I'd hate to be those guys you know because they got to get called into the court you can't refuse if you're called to the court you got to go dead or alive you're going to go to the court and uh and when the and you got to get low when you come before the king and and then and then you have to you know butter him up oh here I am you know oh wise king and we have to say those things we 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 in our culture we hate that we and especially as Americans we fought a revolution over that we don't want that. And what's bad is, is that our American ideal, or I should say ideology, has informed, I'm afraid, our approach to God. I just want to remind us all that God is not a democracy. God's order is a theocracy. In fact, it's an absolute monarchy. He is God. He's creator God. He's a, the God we read about in the Old Testament is the same God that we have in the New Testament. And we need to come back to grips with that. One of the favorite books that I've been reading, it's becoming a quick favorite of mine in the, in the Bible, is the book of Leviticus of all things. Because I see and I read how extensively God claims His complete authority over His people for their good. He would make a... He would make a, a, a command to live holy and then he would say, I am the Lord. He would say, abstain from this and don't do that. I am the Lord. And he would say that so many times in all of the varying chapters of what we would call the holiness code from Leviticus 18 to about Leviticus 21. 
And we see how the priests are supposed to react and how they're, they're not supposed to become, become presumptuously before God. In other words, to, be, to come into God's presence without reverence or you will die. And they did. And, and then I think in the New Testament how the Bible says we are a priesthood of believers declaring the praises of God and yet so many times we treat God with contempt by the very way we talk of Him or at least in the way that we act out that message that we say we possess and yet we, you, we see what we post on social media. We see how we, we, we respond to things that upset us. We see how we carry on and the things we permit in our life. And I'm here to say today, I'm not the only one, that the implication of the resurrection is the complete and total lordship of Jesus Christ to sin against his authority is to commit high treason in a way that you and I can't comprehend. Now you say, well, they say, well, dang, where's the grace in that? Well, the grace is Jesus. Amen. So, inasmuch as I appreciate and value the supremacy of God in the book of Leviticus, Jesus quoted well over a hundred times pulling from the book of Leviticus. I appreciate this buffer of grace that I have as a sinful human in the person of Jesus Christ. He alone provides that for me. The implication then of the resurrection is as it says here in Romans chapter 14 and verse 9. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And we read that and we think, wow, that's a good set of verses, that he might become both the Lord of both the dead and the living. Well, there's a little bit of a play here in the word Lord. There is a word family in the Greek called the poieo family of words. And, and typically when the word is used, it's referring to the creation of virtue of God and how he creates. But it also has a judicial sense, that which he oversees that which he can adjudicate, that which he can penalize. And wouldn't it be that where it says he has made, or that he might be, the, the, might be Lord of both the dead and the living, that he might be Lord in that word phrase is that other family of the, of the family of Poeo, and it is that of the judicial sense. So Jesus, because of his resurrection, stands as our advocate before the Father. Those of us who've trusted in Christ, we do sin. A lot. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, because of the resurrection. And that's good news. But the bad news is, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your advocate, you will know Him as your judge. And He has the authority to penalize. Christianity is exclusive. God is exclusive. And, and it doesn't matter the theories that you may possess. It doesn't matter if you get caught up into the, the rhetoric of the world and the spirit of this age. 
God doesn't care about your opinion. And, and I don't say that to try to be mean. I'm not trying to be a blunt end of a stick. I'm just trying to tell you. Sin is such a danger, such a toxin, such a disease, such an inherent killer that God decrees and there's no other way to live. We can't help ourselves. We are totally dependent. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And this is the shortest example of the gospel in the entire New Testament. So if you don't know what the gospel is, Here's it. Here it is. The shortest possible distilled version of it. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Not my idea. Not anyone else's idea. According to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Where's the emphasis of the Gospel? It's on the Scriptures. And then here's the really juicy part of it. That he was seen by Cephas, also known as Peter. Then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have died. And after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. One, two, three, four times... In a few verses, we have the emphasis on two things as it pertains to the gospel of Jesus. The scriptures and the eyewitnesses. I'm just, I'm profoundly awestruck by this. So many times I think subconsciously, we don't communicate a present Savior. Many times when we refer to Jesus, it's often with the tone of a past tense. This is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus was. This is what the scriptures had said. But I want you to know Jesus is. And he is right now, just as much as he was then. He is. And he, is, he was seen. The scriptures testified to him. And he is. 35 years ago, I met him, fixing to be 36. And he hadn't failed me once. And there are so many of you out there, too, that in various and sundry circumstances and in God's own way of choosing, you met Jesus Two, but you met him then, but he is now. I want to, just because we should, turn to Mark chapter 15. I'm not going to read all of these chapters. Just, just get your thumb in there 
if you happen to have a page break. I'm just going to read some things. I'm going to start to just kind of give a compilation. Chapter 15 begins in the book of Mark with, with uh, Jesus being taken before Pilate, with Jesus being mocked, with Jesus being hung on the cross. They're mocking Him. They're reviling Him. They're saying He can't save Himself. Verse 33 says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 37, He cried out with a loud voice, breathed His last. And then there was a soldier there. He's watching this whole thing unfold. And I dare say he may have been the very first witness. He saw something. Now I can stand really close to this pretty cross. I can even lean on it. In fact, I do often, every day. But he was there and he watched this whole scene unfold. And you cannot forget, we don't live simply in a material world. It is a spiritual world as well. He saw something because he said, in verse 39, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out, and notice it says, like this, and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God, and he was half right. The only part he got wrong was the was. But he saw something. Right then, things were different. Things were changing. We go and we read down how they laid Jesus in a borrowed tomb hastily. They rolled a big stone in front of it. Then they wanted to come back after the Sabbath was passed. Mary Magdalene in chapter 16, verse 1. Mary, the mother of James, Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, they came on the first day of the week, which consequently is why we have Christian worship services on Sunday. That's when things changed. Up until that time, they got together on the Sabbath, which was Friday at 6 o'clock in the, in the evening until Saturday at 6 o'clock in the evening. That was when they went. But then suddenly it changed because on the first day of the week, Jesus came out of the grave. So if anyone ever asks you, why do you go to church on Sunday for? Because we're so pious and legalistic, we go on the Sabbath after all. Because Jesus came out of the grave on Sunday. Good enough for me. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone? And when they looked up, they saw the angels. The stone had been rolled away. Here's what happened. Verse 6. The angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is risen. In other words, he's not here. You come to the wrong place. And then he says, see the place? Look. The emphasis on observation. Is it not still an observation in our day? If you're here and you claim to know Jesus Christ and you live like hell all week long and ain't nothing redemptive about you, I'd kindly ask you just to shut up. Because 
Jesus don't need your witness. Jesus stands alone because he stands in holiness. And they said, observe. He's not there. He's not a dead savior. He's not a hope so with wishful thinking. It was empty. Notice what else it says. I like this. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, Peter had done the thing that you and I would never want to do. He denied Jesus three times and once with profanity. Jesus said he would. He said, oh, I won't do it. But he did. And you can imagine how broken and guilt-laden he was, right? And then Jesus, very first message, go to and Peter. Go tell the disciples, and Peter, look, Christian, maybe you've made a real mess of it, okay? Man, you're in it up to your neck, and you've just done things. He's like, I don't know, and that's the thing, boy, when we sin, the devil loves to shame us. But if Jesus thought so much of Peter and loved him so much to restore him, he'll restore you too. Don't you forget that. Don't you let the devil convince you somehow that you're past the grace of God. You're not. He don't hold a light to what God can do. And so he goes on to say, they went out quickly and fled from the tomb and they trembled and were amazed. Well, I don't know how I'd feel, but I probably would be all that and above too. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So realistically, how would you feel? You go expecting a body. You saw him die. You saw how he was scourged to down to the, the very meat off the back of his bones. You saw him hang on the cross. You saw him heave in agony and die. You saw them jab that spear through him and the water and the blood come out. And, and, and now he's not in there. You saw him go in. He's not in there. What do you do with that? Do you know if anyone else has ever done that? Do we have any example of anyone else that's ever done that? No, we we do not. So they rose early on the first day of the week, down in verse 9. It says, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and and had been seen by her, they still didn't believe. And notice verse 12, and after that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. We know that to be the road to Emmaus. And they went and told it to the rest, but they didn't believe him. And verse 14, lastly, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had, now notice this part, this is the part, who had seen him after he was risen. He's been seen. And, and I will tell you this, what makes it so hard when we talk to unbelievers is they'll say, how do you know that Jesus exists? And I can say, because I've met him. I've talked to him today. He's talked to me. And then they think, you're a little loopy. 
And I don't know how to describe it. Do you? I, I see him, but not with these eyes. I hear him, but not with these ears. But it's just as if they were working like that. He's just like that. He's not dead, is what I'm trying to get you to see. He's not dead. I had a story. This is a French man. His name is <clears throat> Guillaume Benon. <laughs> That's how you say it. It looks like Guillaume Bignon. But, but it's Guillaume Benon is how it's said, okay? Now you listen to this. Our Jesus is very active in the world. This is a young man, recent. He says, my family was nominally Roman Catholic. But as soon as I was old enough to tell my parents that I, I, that I didn't believe any of it, I stopped going to church. My life as an atheist was really no different than it had been before. I graduated from a prestigious engineering school in France, landing a job as a computer scientist. I also ended up playing in a National League volleyball, so I traveled every weekend throughout the country to play. In terms of feminine conquests, I was starting to have enough success to satisfy the standards of the volleyball locker room. All in all, I was pursuing pleasure on all fronts and doing a pretty good job of it. I lived in a very secular culture where the chances of me ever hearing the gospel, let alone believing it, were extremely slim. <clears throat> Let's see. Yeah. I went on holiday to the Caribbean with my brother. One day we decided to come back from the beach by hitchhiking, because that's safe. We were picked up by two attractive female tourists from the United States. I ended up dating one of them. She was from New York. And soon enough, I discovered that she was a believing Christian. To me, that was intellectual suicide. But I figured, she's attractive. I'm going to pursue this. We were in a problematic, long-distance relationship. I needed to disabuse her of her silly Christian beliefs so that we could be together and be happy. But if I was going to criticize Christianity, he said, I first needed to know what Christianity claimed. So I picked up a Bible and started to read about Jesus. And that's where he went wrong. <clears throat> the account I read of Jesus was impressive. I was fascinated by the authority that this man had. I, I didn't have much place in my atheistic worldview of his claims for the supernatural but the way he navigated conversation caught my attention. I figured, I'm a scientist. There's one additional experiment I can carry out to test my investigation. I'll pray and ask God, if you're real, go ahead and reveal yourself to me. Place where he went wrong, number two. A couple of weeks after I prayed that prayer, my shoulders started to fail me completely out of the blue. Ten minutes into every volleyball practice, it became very painful. So I couldn't play for a few weeks. I thought, maybe I should visit one of those churches to see what Christians do when they get together. Because, yeah. Here's what he said. I got the address of an evangelical church in Paris. 
I really went there as you would maybe go to the zoo in order to see some weird exotic animals. I don't remember a thing that preacher said, but I was very, very uncomfortable. As soon as he finished his sermon, I jumped to my feet and ran to the exit. I had one foot out the door when I got a strong blast of chills in my stomach grabbing me by the throat and stopping me on the doorstep. I heard myself thinking, this is ridiculous. So I turned around, walked straight up to the head pastor and introduced myself. He took me to his office and we talked for hours. He was educated, rational, and believed that God existed and that Jesus was raised from the dead. I just couldn't fathom it. For a number of months after that, I returned to see him. I bombarded him with questions and he would provide reasonable biblical answers. I came to see that the gospel accounts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus could be taken as a reliable witness. My questioning shifted intellectually from give me a reason to believe to give me a reason to doubt. Then I redirected my prayer life, still as an unbeliever, and I asked God, these things are starting to make sense to me, but I'm going to need you to reveal yourself to me in a very explicit way. What happened next is that God reactivated my conscience. You see, you're dead in sin, right? At about the same time as my investigation began, I had engaged in an atrocious, immoral sin against my girlfriend. It was pretty extreme, even by my own atheistic moral standards. All of those things I had done came straight up in my face. And I was struck with an intense physical pain from the guilt. Because his conscience was awakened. Suddenly all the things I had been reading and talking about with the pastor made perfect sense. Now I understood the gospel. Jesus died on the cross so that he could pay the price for my sins. And so I received that gospel, the good news that I don't gain my salvation by my good works, but by simply placing my faith in Jesus. That was a light bulb experience. Suddenly I understood. I told God, I'm giving you my life. I received the sacrifice of Jesus by faith alone. And from there, the guilt just evaporated. Because that's what Jesus does. Every trace of guilt departed and I experienced a spiritual renewal knowing that I was forgiven and that I experienced the living God. Now notice what he said there, the living God. In the end, after I moved to New York, it became clear that that girl and I were not meant for one another, but God had sovereignly brought me there. I started to study my newfound faith, ending up in seminary. Later on, I met a wonderful American woman whom I married and started a family with, I am now finishing up my doctoral dissertation and slowly become a Christian scholar. I hated God. I hated religion. But God called me and loved me when I was a sinner. He saved me by grace alone, through faith alone, to His glory. The reason I read that to you is because Guillaume Benon met a living Jesus. Faith didn't bring that to him. He didn't have any. He only had contempt and doubt. 
but he got slammed with the real person of Jesus Christ. And when he did, he saw his sin and then he repented because God granted him that. It's a, Jesus is a real savior for a a real life to live in a real world with real hope at the end and while we live. And so what I want to say is it's the witness from the living, not the dead. You ever remember Charles Coulson, Chuck Coulson? For those of you who are a little more seasoned, the Watergate scandal, okay? Big old thing during, I believe, the Nixon administration. I wasn't yet born myself, Uh, but, uh, you know, not long after. Here, here, it was the biggest deal ever. Here, now listen to what Chuck says. This makes a lot of sense. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The implication of the resurrection is that Jesus is total Lord because he's alive. He came back to life. He didn't stay dead. Now look here, Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 39. Then Jesus, this Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now notice the emphasis again. What we've seen, we've seen him. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. This is in the book of Acts. This is when Pentecost is happening and then Peter is preaching and then he quotes David. He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord God said to my Lord Jesus, Set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, now this is the part I want you to see. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That goes back to the judicial sense of poieo. You will either have him as your advocate or you will have him as your judge. And how fine those wheels do grind in perfect justice by the hand of Almighty God. Now what's the response to that? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? It's a reasonable question. Then Peter said, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. When you are called to the court of King Jesus, you will come. You will come. And be so thankful you are called. Repentance 
is literally, I'm walking my way down my path to get into the mischief and sin and troubles that I like. And then I meet Jesus and I start walking his way. I repent of that. I am now going this way. You see, you leave that behind, right? And you're going this way. The concern of so many of our modern age is that so many profess Jesus as Lord, but they still keep walking this way. They claim to be Jesus, and they love porn, and they love profanity, and they love evil, and they hate church, and they don't want to give God His, and they just despise all it, but they still need to be a Christian some way. But then you have the other ones who said, you know what? Don't want to go there. And you begin to walk with Jesus. Doesn't mean you don't stumble. Doesn't mean that you might not have a season of woe. But it means that you are compelled by that life presence of Jesus inside of you saying, you're mine. you mine. You're coming this way. And if I have to thump you, I'll thump you, but you're coming this way. I've been thumped a lot. And, and you see, you, can't, you cannot go that way. You just can't. And sometimes you'll even get down the road of fur peace, and you'll look back and you'll go, oh my gosh, why? Just, just why? And you keep on walking until one day you're like, man, I'm home. And I'm so glad to be here. Because we serve a risen Savior. We're not alone. Christians aren't people that just live by faith. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. But what that means is we have a faith that is kept by the power of God because it is a real person that is making it alive. I don't conjure it. You just read your Bible all the time so you can keep your faith up. No, I read my Bible all the time because I like to talk with the Lord. I love to hear His voice talk to me. I like to see what He has to say about things because I need it. I like how I'm strengthened by it. I like how He convicts me of my sin by it. I like how when all this world is boiling down into a nutball that it is, okay, this is the one place that I can go that is always the same. And at peace. It also tells me what's coming next. I like that too. Verse 36 then of that passage. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now why do you think it differentiated there? Lord goes back to that, that as Americans, we're not king. I am slave, Lord. I do what he says, no more, no less. I don't own myself. In fact, everything that I think I own, he owns. He's given it to me. I have a stewardship, but I'm accountable to my king, my Lord. And Christ, simply the anointed of God. God's Lamb, the Anointed One, the Messiah, Lord and Christ. There are people that believe that you can know Jesus 
as, as Savior, but not know Him as Lord. So you can be saved from the penalty of your sins, but you don't actually have to walk in total servitude to Him. That's a hellish doctrine. It's called Sandemanianism, in case you're wondering. And it's been propagated for about the last 120 years. And people love that because you know what it gives you the permission to do? Whatever you want to. It fails to understand that when the Bible says God will give you a new heart or he'll give you the desires of your heart, when I meet Jesus and he just, I don't even know how to say what happens. Uh, (laughs) It's better, okay? So when that happens... (laughs) The things that I wanted to do before, I don't want to do anymore. He gives me new want-tos, new desires. Now, my old flesh is back there going, don't you want to take a little bit of the popcorn of sin and just nibble? And then you may think, okay, but it's just so bad. And you're just like, no, I don't. I just don't. Because I've got Jesus and he's alive The absolute lordship, the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want to just say this emphatically in case you missed it. If you know Jesus as Savior, I can promise you, if you really know Him as Savior, then you will know Him as Lord too. Because if you don't know Him as Lord and you're claiming Him as Savior, you lie, you're a liar. And you're a fraud. The implication of the resurrection is the absolute supreme authority of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus did what no person ever did before. It demonstrated the power of God over death by raising him who knew no sin from death back to life. He came back to life. Do you know what happens to a dead body in three days? It liquefies on the inside first. It's just wrong. But that's what happens. It's all juicy and googly and it leaks. That's what happens. So don't just think he had a nice nap. God brought him back to life. He came back out of the grave. The result of Jesus being brought back to life was the Father inaugurating Him as both Lord and Christ. The resurrection was prophecy become reality. In fact, over 300 prophecies to be exact. Lastly, most soberingly, as sovereign Lord, everyone will bow before Him and give account. And the Bible does tell us that. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, that's up there, and of those on earth, that's down here, and those under the earth, that's that really far down there, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, total sovereign, to the glory of God the Father. 
Here is the implication of the resurrection, like Tim Keller so well put it. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of eyewitnesses of those in the Bible is that he did. And the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of those in the Bible and the testimony of the witnesses who are alive today say, oh, he did. And he is. And he will be. Because he is. The great I am. Just like he said. He's not in a grave. He's not just in a faith wrapped up somewhere. He is. It could be you come today, and maybe, you know, maybe this is the only time you come to church. Consider it a grace, by the way, that you do. God compels you to come. And He's saying it's not about exercising religion. It's about meeting a real person. A real Jesus. And he lives. I always say that everyone's pretty tough until they get cold, weak, and sick. Then they get pretty, pretty open to new things. Go to a hospital and visit the ward where the ones are dying. And you'll know what I mean. These big strapping men are now just skin and bones. They can't help themselves. And their mortality is showing up saying, now what? I would say to you today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, then ask Him like Gion the No. Lord, Save me. Save me. Here I am. I made a mess of everything. And if you're a Christian who's lived in defeat because you just, you just keep kind of ricocheting, but then you come back, but then you ricochet and then you come back, you've got a divided soul. Choose you today who you're going to serve. Today. Resurrection Sunday is the day that you decide to live or die under the sovereignty of God. I'm going to ask JT to come. I'm going to ask for today that where you're sitting, that you would assume a, an attitude of prayer and really look inside. What is God telling you? Because you know when He speaks. He's very clear. If you have that button going on, repent. Walk in obedience, Christian. Know Jesus today. As JT sings, you come. You come.